This is episode 12 with Mikhail Cho, co-founder and CEO of Unsplash. Welcome to Asian Tech Leaders. My name is Justin Peng, and each week we share insights from Asian tech leaders to help inspire and guide you to reach your full potential. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get started. Mikhail Cho is a co-founder and CEO of Unsplash, a crowdsourced photo service platform with over 300 million users. Unsplash has grown into an industry-leading visual community and used by folks such as Deepak Chopra and industry titans like Apple. On this episode, I chat with Mikhail about growing up in a small town in Wisconsin, how career shadowing in college helped him figure out what to do with his career, and what it's like to co-found a company with their significant other. Hope you enjoy this episode, and this wraps up our last podcast for 2019. Hi, Mikhail. How's it going? It's Justin. Hey, I'm good. Good to hear from you, Justin. Likewise. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Um, where are you today and how's the weather? In Montreal, freezing, but I'm all right. I'm all right with it. <laughs> have you been outside today or have you been able to shelter yourself from the elements? I, in a- I have. I have. So we do a team workout and uh, that was this morning. So I, I did go out super early oh, in that. Okay. I accidentally wore like the cooling leggings. So, <laughs> wrong one. Extra, little extra, yeah. It wasn't built for Canadians or Canadian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not cold enough. We need, yeah. we need to test our might. Um, and what what do you usually do for your team workouts? Um, so it's like functional training. We have a really good trainer who he was actually uh, on the Canadian Olympic lifting team. Oh wow! Yeah, so he's and he's really thoughtful about um, form, posture. And then just getting it right, kind of like reversing the effects of working in front of a computer all the time. That was the original uh, yeah. brief that we spoke about him with. And he's like, I can do this. I can yes. help make the <laughs> posture better. And um, do you believe that a team that sweats together gets together and makes better products? Or can, have you seen this kind of translate into um, like energy or community building within um, your company and Splash? Yeah, I think it's one of the best things that we've done. So. Um, we, some of us had been individually working out and then I think collectively, yeah, it became sort of a new level. Um, and I I can see sort of how people feel even like not during the workout, sometimes they're really tough, but after the after effects of it, um, and people feeling really good, um, going into the office and feeling that way too. So, uh, we've really enjoyed that because like, yeah, we're always in front of computers. So if you can yeah. do things to offset that, I think it's really helpful. That's great. And is it, um, it's obviously optional, but what percent or how many of your staff end up joining on average? Yeah, it is optional. We do two a week uh, and most people, so we, we're a distributed team also. Yeah. So we, we, we do the full team one in Montreal, whoever's around. Uh, usually the maximum number of people who would be in the area at that time would probably be like 10 of our teammates and we usually get six, seven on average. So it's pretty good. Hmm. Cool. Cool. It's a good way to start the morning too. And then, um, the rest of the day you can hibernate in your big park. Yes. (laughs) Yes, You can, you can reverse the, all all the the other effects the other way and then go work out again and reverse it back. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, thanks again for joining the podcast. I think it'd be really interesting to even start with something as simple as your name. So yes. first name, Mikhail, last name, Cho. Um, yeah. tell, tell listeners a little bit more about your background and, and your parents. 
Yeah, so my parents met in Korea. I was born in the US, I was born in Wisconsin. So my mom was from Wisconsin. She went to go teach English in Seoul, Korea. Uh, she was training at the gym and my dad was a gym trainer. Um, couldn't speak English very well, if at all. And uh, they met there. So they met in Korea. And then I want to say even less than a year, she brought him uh, back. They actually got married in Korea wow. so that he could get into the US. Yeah. And then uh, showed up in Wisconsin, my grandmother's door in Green Bay. Uh, <laughs> the Korean husband. <laughs> wow. And have you heard stories about how at least your maternal grandparents reacted when they saw your dad at the doorstep? <laughs> like, what was that like? I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I heard definitely like a shock uh, for years, even. Like, um, it was very, wow. You know, Sue, we knew you were adventurous in these things. Uh, that was my mom's name. And is my mom's name and uh yeah and it was like, coming back and seeing that happen uh i only heard anecdotally so i don't know like the full um how it totally felt but you know i, I could see it if like my recently born daughter she's four months old now <laughs> something like that happened to be pretty wild and i'm pretty open to all that kind of stuff so i can only imagine my my grandmother who you know strict family you know kind of coming from green bay area which is a little bit more conservative so yeah definitely an interesting thing that probably happened at that time and then what about on your uh paternal grandparents side do you know how uh their reaction or embrace of the relationship was yes i don't i don't know as as much from uh, that side because mm -hmm. you know i i actually didn't learn to speak korean so mm -hmm. one of the challenges we had so my dad speaks Korean, but my mom doesn't. And then you grow up in uh, an American sort of upbringing where Korean is not around you. And then it's actually like not even cool to be doing yeah. that. And I think when you're little, you're always just trying to do what's cool. And yeah, uh, but yeah that's one of the things that is unfortunate later because you realize, oh man, I missed out on the ability to learn that language mm -hmm. and then be able to talk with my dad even on a, on the level that is would bring it probably to a whole nother level of our relationship and then the whole other side of my family. So I don't know as much how they felt about it. Um, mm -hmm. They did come, you know, it's it's been a great relationship. Like we're all really close and we went to Korea for the first time uh, mm -hmm. like four years ago and my grandma's come over and she stayed for summers uh, to help like raise my, and watch my little brother. So um, those have happened, but I couldn't really like converse with them to understand. Mm -hmm. And I was really young too when, um, they, they came over for that summer. Mm. So within um, Wisconsin, you were born and raised within the Green Bay area? I was, so that's where my mom was from. And then yeah. they moved around a bit uh, as I was, um, so like once I was born, I was born in La Crosse, which mm. is you know, also in Wisconsin. And then uh, they moved eventually and settled in Nina. So I'm from Nina, Wisconsin, which is like a small town, 45 minutes from Green Bay. Mm. And what was the um, what was like the the diversity like? What did the community look like? And how did you kind of relate to what your peers and and classmates were? Yeah, so uh, not very diverse. I'm trying to remember like how many Asian kids that I felt like were in my high school or in my middle school. It it did kind of feel like I was one of the only ones. Maybe there was a couple, 
Uh, and then like really the place where we would meet uh, specifically other Korean people was through, we had Korean church. Yeah. And my dad was heavily involved in the church. And so uh, Sunday and going there, and then those would become like additional friends and people that you would see during the week as well. So uh, that was more like the Asian upbringing a bit that I felt mm-hmm. uh, and the yeah. culture that I felt that was coming from there. But I would still say it was heavily dominant around um, like what the existing culture that was in Wisconsin. It's like 80, 90%, you know, of what you're getting there is that. And then I maybe had like 10% influence from um, the Korean side. Right. And then I guess as growing up, you kind of um, touched on this earlier. What was the kind of internal dialogue around your identity, right? Because on the one hand, you want to fit in. But on the other hand, at least one day a week, you'd be going to Korean church, a lot more Korean people. Did you embrace that as a kid or were you almost in denial that that was part of who you were? How How did you relate to that growing up? Yeah, I liked it. I never felt that anyone made me feel like I was Korean or Asian. Yeah. growing up so I, I think that is um you know that's a that's a that's a good thing that, that you feel as a kid like i never felt uh that i was less or in a different category of any yeah. way even though like we may not have had a, a ton of you know diversity in our area mm-hmm. um so i didn't feel it in that way i didn't feel it from like my friends or like friends that i was trying to meet um i only would be aware of it when we it would be like we're gonna do the ex Korean thing, you know, like uh, we're gonna go play soccer with the Korean church. So then you would know, right. you know, okay, we're going to understand uh, and I'm gonna be part of the, you know, the friends and the, the culture that I have on that side at this time. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And then I guess um, in terms of upbringing and, you know, as a elementary school student, for example, were there any activities that you were encouraged or even discouraged to do growing up? Uh, so my mom and my dad both like were really open with putting us in lots of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom was a teacher, so she taught uh, kindergarten through fifth grade. So you know, helping she understood kind of like get a breath of things, so you really can later maybe figure out what you want to do. You don't yeah. have to do that now. Just experiment and do a ton of different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I remember just everything, you know, all the flyers that the school would send home about extracurriculars. Yeah, you know, my mom, she would take that and she'd look at it and say, what do you want to do? And it, not like, do you want to do any of these? It was like, which ones do you want to do? It was yeah. already kind of a given that you're going to pick, uh, you know, one from this category, three from this mm-hmm. one, two from this one, and just kind of put into everything. So it's super active. Yeah. Uh, my dad, you know, his background was working in the gym. He, you know, he played football. He was one of the on one of the first uh, American football teams in Korea. So yeah, wow. Seoul, at Seoul University. And this is uh, American football, not soccer. Yeah, football. <laughs> yeah some like wild pictures wow. of how they got gear and everything. Okay. Um, yeah, so like even going to Green Bay was like a mecca, you know, for, yeah. for him. Yeah. And uh, I remember my mom telling me a story that you know, he, they drove, they did a road trip down to have him try out for the Dallas Cowboys. One of the first things he did when he came to America. So a uh, big, like adventurous background, like always yeah. doing those sorts of things, open to lots of those things, um, felt education was very important. Mm-hmm. So uh, I never felt anyone told me that I couldn't do something. Yeah. Uh, I think the bigger limiting factor is just like the, 
you know, the kid feeling of trying to fit in and be cool, that's what limits you. Mm. Uh, and, and I think I had a little too much of that when I was little. Mm. So what did you end up gravitating towards, whether it's, you know, academics or sports or any other extracurriculars? Yeah, I think in general, people tend to gravitate towards things that are, they're good at. Um, mm. You get, you know, so you start to get that uh, reinforcement where people are telling you you're good, it feels good. Uh, so a lot of it was physical activities that's like excited me, you know, that was interesting. So I would play football, soccer, basketball, swimming, yeah. uh, just active like all the time. And then uh, I learned some tricks to get really good at those mathematical tables. Uh, like my mom was would teach me how to go. You used to get timed on those times tables, like how fast you could go. Uh, and I remember like getting really fast in it. I got really excited about it. And uh, so she kind of took my competitive nature from sports and put it towards math. And so then math got really exciting for me too, because uh, again, I just felt that I was good at it. Yeah. And did uh, your and mom so, actually yeah. teach math or what was her subject? So she taught gifted and talented, which is like uh, people take, you know, a, a certain number of tests. Yeah. Uh, and then if you, are at a certain level, they'll add you into the gifted and talented program, which is like additional um, things to, you know, accelerate your learning as well. So like you, you may be ahead. Basically, like gifted and talented is like top twenty percent or something of performers, right. uh, and who have shown that on a standardized test. And then they're saying, okay, we're, we're going to supplement you by giving you some more things, you know, outside of the current curriculum. Yeah. So does that mean you had no shortage of of homework or things to do after school? Yeah, so uh, like after school, I would my mom was at the school. I'd go in her room. She'd have a yeah. bunch of cool stuff. Uh, you know, uh, all the access, to all the, like the computer and the games yeah. and everything. So yeah, it was it was really good in terms right. of that. But it it sounds like it actually didn't really feel like work. It was more fun, and you know, in some ways, your mom kind of gamified it and kind of appealed to the competitive nature to you. Is that kind of right? Yeah, she did that, and then obviously there's subjects where in school, the way it's structured, you're just kind of forced to plod through certain ones. Yeah. And I, I vividly recall like hating some of the other subjects um, and her sitting with me and prying out like reading certain things, you know, that I didn't want to read at that time or uh, making a presentation I didn't really want to make at all. And I think my mom always saw the potential in, in all of her kids. She's, I think mm -hmm. that's why she became a teacher was how do I help all kids, my kids, kind of reach that potential that I see. And mm. I think she, she really just kept trying to push us mm. um, to do a lot of those things. Right. And then as your youth, how did that actually translate into what you thought you wanted to do for a living or in your career? What were your kind of initial thoughts of what you would do after school? Yeah, uh, I think, you know, the wanting to play sports, be active, have fun, um, you know, hang out with friends, like every everything that you would do as a teenager and you're growing up, that's like where I was really focused. I wasn't focused too much on even career at that time. When I got to university, uh, I went to University of Wisconsin and you know, I wasn't sure what my major was gonna be. So I was still like trying to figure it out. Uh, I chose something uh, really broad like business and took some of the introductory courses, psychology, stuck out to me it was like an early class that you had to take as part of um, majoring in business and it seemed really easy for me but hard for other people so uh, I think 
there was some little programming in my head that I had started to learn about uh, a way of looking at the world. Like if something is easier for you, but harder for other people, that's probably like a signal mm. that maybe you should start going in that direction. Yeah. And that, that was something that I learned that in that moment. And then there were some other things that I started to do to refine myself uh, that I only reflected on later. That was actually a really good thing that I would love. Uh, I think everybody should do is nobody told me to do it. I just kind of took a guess. And in my second year of university, you know, you're at that point of like, you have to choose a major now, you know, yeah. you've taken all like the introductory stuff. You got to pick something. And I'm like, I don't know what I want to be. So I don't want to waste these next two years. But if the whole point of these next two years is to figure out what I want to be, I should go work in some of those places of what I might want to be. Yeah. So I went to like the alumni. I, I, I looked at, you know, this is like primitive internet too. So you couldn't like find mm -hmm. all the positions necessarily. So yeah. I would just, I just went through the entire like coursework. I asked uh, like an academic advisor, what are even all the jobs possible? You know, like that you could get with any, like every job. And so I listed them and, uh, I made sort of a short list of that. And then I took that to the alumni network that we had and I just started typing that in and I wrote to alumni if I could just come watch you do your job for an afternoon. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was like the most powerful thing for me. I did like wow. a psychiatrist, a psychologist, uh, medical, and a lot of it, I was just like, oh man, I'm kind of bored in a lot of these yeah. settings. And I didn't think I would be that. And oh man, I'm getting set up to go down this road. <laughs> of yeah. and, uh, I haven't yet found something there. And um, and that was something I learned. You know, and, and that's when I joined the Entrepreneurship Society. Hmm. So I was interested in it, but I'm still like one foot in. I'm not sure. And that's that's kind of the vibe that I had in university. I wasn't uh, really quite there yet. I wasn't sure. Uh, and uh, and then really the catalyst was when I graduated. That's when you got to be sure your, yeah. your loans are starting. And this was 2008. So financial crisis is happening uh, or about to happen. And that's when I met my now wife and moved mm -hmm. to, uh, I went to Montreal actually just to visit her. There's a whole, whole story there, but um, mm -hmm. that inflection point and then having to go somewhere and realize you have this impending like monthly thing that's going to start happening. Uh, in terms of in terms of loan payments, you you really yeah. start to have your back against the wall to figure things out. And we accelerated. We tried different things, not necessarily things that I um, would want to do, but I always did feel that from that experience of job shadowing people, mm. that I may need to start something on my own. Mm. And how long was it job shadowing? And was it pretty? Did most alumni say yes, or did you have to face a lot of rejections before you got the yeses? They all said yes. Wow. Yeah. Like if I if I could have that if we could have, anybody could have that kind of open right now with emails, you know, like it's the dream. Like I think, um, I, yeah, I was. It was amazing to see that kind of support. Um, it allowed. Yeah, it was a huge like thing for for me to like start thinking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it was such a great idea because for those who don't aren't in a program that have co op or don't end up doing a lot of internships. It's a, it seems like a really smart way to kind of de-risk a lot of the career decisioning or at least figure out what you don't want to do. So it's easier to yeah. figure out what you do want to do. And yeah. uh, it, it also seemed like it probably saved you a few years of actually traveling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so. to me, that, that was that's actually exactly how I looked at it. I remember being like, I may not find what I want to do, but at least I can cross off 
some of these. Yeah, very cool. So graduating um, from university, where were you at and what did you end up deciding to do? I graduated in 2008 and I'm still in Wisconsin. Uh, I did my last semester abroad. Uh, uh, on my way back, I was like, okay, I'm going to see some places if I can while I'm out here because I don't know if I'm how often I'm going to go you know, and travel this direction. So yeah. um, I stopped down in Mexico, and that's where I met my now wife. So mm -hmm. I saw her there, and I was just like enthralled. Um, asked her where she was from. She said from Montreal. I didn't expect actually her to be from Montreal because they were like, she's Italian. So they were speaking Italian. I'm like, oh, maybe we're going to Italy. You know, they're from Italy. Uh, but yeah, Montreal, uh, being from Wisconsin, it's not it doesn't really cross your mind to yeah. go up into Canada. You're, you're already cold enough. Mm -hmm. um, but I went back home to Wisconsin and then I said, you know, I'm going to figure out how to go and visit her. Uh, it took, ended up going on a one-way bus with my friend's soccer team who happened to be playing her school. So that was like total random coincidence. Yeah. Um, boarded that and then took a one-way bus to Montreal. Yeah, Kay showed up and uh, her parents said, oh, that's that guy from Mexico. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, he's staying here now, I guess. And uh, yeah, we don't know where he's gonna stay exactly. So I remember that first night I was looking at hostels and stuff and I was used to traveling, you know, like backpacking style. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and they're like, you're not going to stay in a hostel. So they had that little meeting on the stairs between yeah, two yeah. parents, and they came back and they said, "You know, we don't we don't do this, but uh, you know, you're going to stay here. Uh, you can't, you know, stay in Steph's room. That's my now wife. Uh, yeah. You can't, you can't stay downstairs. We have like a, a security system, motion sensors, so that'll <laughs> all go off. Uh, so you're going to have to sleep upstairs with her brother. <laughs> and, He's like, he's a uh, 16 at the time. Didn't yeah. know he's like six feet tall. I'm six feet tall. You got a single, <laughs> single bed. So I go upstairs like 11 p.m. I'm like, hey, your dad said uh, I'm sleeping with you tonight. <laughs> that, ended up, that ended up being three months. Yeah, I was uh, I stayed there and then um, actually moved down to the basement. We started the company uh, when I was living in the basement. Wow. And this is Uber Foundry or Crew that you started together? So, uh, yeah. So even all of that history, Uber Foundry was uh, basically like a creative agency studio that uh, I started right after I had worked at an agency, a design agency here in Montreal. Mm. So one of my first jobs that I got here was at a design agency. Uh, I was very interested in the internet. My degree that I did end up choosing in um, at Wisconsin was psychology. And a lot of people actually are like, oh, that's really different. It's actually so much, it's like so practical. Psychology, I'm so happy that I majored in that because it's like factors into everything. It was okay. also just really interesting to me. Yeah. And it fits right into like design, you know, how you think about people are maybe gonna use something. Yeah. That all just comes from understanding people, which is what psychology is. Mm. And so I got really excited when I was there at the agency and seeing what's possible. Like that's when I realized Wait, you can make one thing and then you can reach everyone in the world. Yeah. And that in 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 an instant you can do it. Mm. And I think that was the big difference between um the jobs that I had shadowed and that feeling. You know, the feeling that I can make an impact like right away, potentially do something. Yeah. Uh, so I became friends with a lot of people there and then uh started Uber Foundry right after that um uh, with one of the developers. 
Mm, great. And then that, did that kind of uh, lead into you founding Crew? And for those who don't know, uh, it'd be great if you could just explain a little bit more about Crew and yeah. uh, what you're doing there. Yeah. So we, you know, we started Uber Foundry, and it was going to be a model of, you know, we're going to build maybe some of our own little projects and products, and then uh, support that with client work. Yeah. Uh, so we were doing like web design, that sort of thing, and web development. Uh, and then at the time, there was an accelerator program that was starting here. So it's like a, a, a school for starting a startup, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, and they give you a bit of money and then you can go and build the thing that you're, you're thinking about. And we thought that was a, you know, that's great. Like usually when we were in an agency and we were starting Uber Foundry, we're spending time building pe other people's ideas. Yeah. And we thought oh, it would be great if we could focus on like maybe building just one of ours. And we didn't have a, an idea, like a really solid one actually going into the program. Um, but they did accept us and, uh, they accepted 10 teams and that started in, uh, January, 2012. Mm. So that's the start of of Unsplash and everything actually started then. So from that same and Unsplash wasn't around yet, but it would come in effect like a year later. So we, you know, went in the program, didn't really have a solid idea. We actually went through a whole bunch of ideas while we were in the program, which is really challenging because you have sort of this pressure where you've got a bit of money to figure something out, but it's like yeah. three months worth of money. Yeah. And at the end of the three months, you're presenting in front of all the potential investors who may give your company a second life. Yeah. Uh, and that's how we really looked at it. And so, yeah, we, we were going through a whole bunch of ideas that could work and uh, landed on one that, you know, wasn't even, as you were mentioning, Crew or Unsplash. It was like the predecessor to those. Mm. Uh, and, and it was, it had some veins of like product hunt, uh, yeah. not executed at, at all as well. Um, but it was about like app discovery and how you know, we had a background of understanding developers and designers and how they'll, they'll make something and put it in the app store and it'll just kind of like disappear unless you market it really well. Yeah. yeah. That's what happened at the time. So we were like, how could we build kind of like a Kickstarter like model, but for apps For apps. Right. So before they launch, you're able to start building up a following, uh, and, and, and co-create a bit, you know, like here's the icon we're thinking, here's the designs, and really just involve a community around the, the thing that you're actually making. And so we raised the first round of investment on that. And that company was called Oomph. So meant to be like push yeah. something forward. Yeah. Uh, we eventually changed that, that name to Crew when we, for six months, were building that product and we realized, you know, there's some challenges with how this could work. Uh, Apple and most people are finding their apps on mobile devices and Apple won't necessarily let another app store come on uh, mm -hmm. and compete with the app store. So there are some, some challenges around that. And also still like we were, we didn't execute that well on it either. I didn't think mm -hmm. it was like a great product. Um, we we're kind of new at that. And but one thing we did see was people were looking to like hire each other. So people who would have this app idea, they'd come in and they'd say, yeah, I have this. I want to you know, start to build a following around it. But I also, I don't really know someone who might be able to help me build it. Yeah. And we would see sort of the same thing on the other side. There'd be people who might have an app idea and they'd say, uh, but I, I'm, I might want to partner with someone in this because I'm not sure maybe how to market it. I don't, maybe that's not my skill set. And so we ended up having this matching that would happen uh, organically. And then we thought, well, maybe there's something actually 
actually here as a business. So that was the the first kernel for crew. Hmm. And crew was yeah. So how do you? We started with mobile, and it was uh, we'll match high quality projects yeah. with high quality um, mobile engineers and designers, and we knew that world well as well because we had worked in freelance, we had been in the agency, and one of the biggest challenges is like making that match. How do you find like high quality work, high quality talent? It's a problem on both sides, uh, especially for like short term projects. And so mm. that was actually the first version of Crew, and that's what Crew was. Very neat. And talk a little bit more about the tech scene, not just in Canada, but Montreal. Um, when you started the uh, when you started Crew, I think this was back in like 2011, 2012. Yeah. So uh, early stage stuff. Um, people like making first investments. There wasn't a lot. There wasn't a lot going on. I think the timing was very fortunate for us. So Real Ventures was a fund that started right at that time. They're the ones who started the accelerator program we went in that was called Founder Fuel, uh, is called Founder Fuel, and they're still operating today. And uh, it really helped seed the community. Mm. Uh, early ideas, you know, people who weren't sure about maybe leaving their job and going and doing something, they, they created sort of an ability for people to do that in Montreal. Yeah. And, and from my understanding, that really wasn't there before they kind of stepped in and did it at the volume that they did it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, at one point I think we went to an event and I was with one of the partners and he said, you know, I, I wonder how many of the people walking around here we've funded. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it seemed like almost everybody. <laughs> so uh, it really did help seed the, the community. And yeah. um, I think we were fortunate with the timing of that because since then, We've seen a lot more development that's happening not only in Montreal, but Toronto, and different parts of Canada. Very cool. And then um, I guess kind of going back to the the evolution of Crew. So you worked on that for about five years. And um, tell folks about how that transitioned into Unsplash and um, you ultimately kind of pivoting from the original idea of Crew. Yeah, when we came up with you know the idea of matchmaking, you know, high quality projects, high quality design developers. Uh, we knew that that would take a long time to build it right. And what we wanted to help was actually help the project go well too. So inside of crew, you would have like a project management system that was based specifically on building like a mobile app. Mm -hmm. So it would like walk you through all the steps, make sure you do this, make sure it's this size, that sort of thing. Here's what you should do now. All the follow-ups were automated, but to build that, it would take years, you know, to build mm -hmm. it well. So we're like, how do we kind of get people hanging around uh, before we do that, so we can still sort of get some initial traction while we build out, you know, the, the rest of this. Mm -hmm. uh, and we started thinking, like, what are some of the problems that people have before, you know, they might want to work with someone on an app? And uh, you know, there was a couple ideas that we ended up executing on: uh, how much to make an app that's still up today. Uh, how much to make an app.com it ranks number one on google search results and it was our idea of we were taking a lot of calls and trying to help budget applications we kept asking the same questions and then we would see the results come out from it and we knew yeah. from the aggregate data okay roughly how much something is going to cost based on what you're looking to do uh, and so we made it like interactive and you could choose what you're thinking of building uh, we provide like little tips how you should think about it and then it would spit out a budget um, and that blew up and that went number one. 
Uh, I believe it's still the number one search result for like how much does an app cost. Cool. And so then we looked at other problems and uh, that, that we just had that lens constantly. And so when we made actually the first version of the website for crew, we needed photography. And again, we thought, you know, that's an early on problem that people have. Uh, we used one image and we worked with a, a photographer that was here and we thought, hey, we've got this like Dropbox folder of other images that are good from this shoot, but we're not going to use them. This is probably a problem that a lot of other people have. What if we just took these images and gave them away? Like if we just made it a public Dropbox and we said, you can do whatever you want with these, you know, the challenge with photography is typically there's like licenses that complex licenses that come with it. Uh, you don't know how many people are going to see it, but yet sometimes the price is tied to that or the license is tied to that. You don't know sizing and you've got watermarks all over it. So we said, let's just like remove all of that and make it super simple. Mm -hmm. You can do whatever you want. Everything will be high resolution. It'll be free. Uh, we took 10 of those images, put them up on a Tumblr blog in an afternoon. And uh, there was 30,000 downloads on those 10 images that day. Wow. Through, without any paid media or discovery, is all organic? Uh, yeah, we put it on one place. Uh, I put it on Hacker News. And the reason I put it there was because I thought that people were going to hate it. So I figured rather than just put it on Hacker News where you know it can get hated on and just kind of like live yeah. over there. Yeah. <laughs> so I literally just put it there and then didn't look at it for a few hours. Um, and then the photographer sent me a text and he said, you know, where'd you, hey, where'd you put the, the site? You know, my yeah. portfolio site's blowing up right now. Uh, and I went, I'm like, I know I only put it one place. So I went back and checked there and it was number one. And then I said, oh, okay, uh, let me go and check and make sure we can handle like, the load that's coming through. It's like we were using public Dropbox links. Like, you're, you're not supposed to do that. Uh, we had a Google form. So I'm checking the Google Sheets. That was the day I realized uh, at that time, like Google Sheets, the maximum rows is 20,000. That's, that's how many signups we had. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then it, from there, it was phenomenal to see that wow. first day, like really just taking off that we, Kind of really hit on a pain point that a lot of people seem to have. And was it a no-brainer to basically pivot from crew to unsplash at that point, or how did you kind of make that decision of um, kind of closing shop in your old venture and starting something new? Yeah, so uh, we unsplash was the number one referral source for crew. So it brought in, uh, I think in that first year, like sixty percent of the projects. So it was wow. great. It did exactly its job. Yeah. Uh, and it kept being useful because every 10 days we would put 10 new images up. Um, and so it was a really great engine for, for growth. And then after that first year, we started to see it continued to grow uh, like, and, and into other areas and people were using the images for other things. But now the hosting is still being supported by crew. So mm -hmm. the referral wasn't maybe as much, but the growth was still there. Uh, that's That was the first thought of, hey, we should probably consider splitting these into two separate things. Uh, and it's it took us another year to actually execute and figure out how to do that. It's pretty complicated, actually, uh, especially in Canada. There's some extra complexities to to being able to figure that out. Uh, but a couple years after that, we did. 2017, we ended up uh, spinning Unsplash out. And then uh, we ended up selling Crew to Dribble, the design marketplace. Very cool. Um... And it, you know, one thing I'd love to to touch on is, you know, your working relationship with your spouse and co-founder. 
What is that like? It must be a pretty unique experience to have your partner be your co-founder. Um, what what yeah. are kind of things that you've seen in that experience and how has that kind of helped both your work and your, your marriage? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is everything that's good, everything that's like bad in your relationship will all get magnified when mm. you start a company together. So like if you have any issue like communicating around something specific, you know, that's gonna get magnified. If you're really good at uh, you know, respecting each other's time and space, that's gonna get even better, you know, like with the it, it all just kind of got magnified. And yeah. uh that requires, I think the biggest thing, and a lot of people will probably say it is uh, how you're communicating, mm. uh, being really early when you're feeling something or thinking something so that um, you're catching things before they even become like bigger problems. Yeah. Usually the problem is like work seeping into personal mm. and it's, it's, it's difficult. It gets even harder when, you know, where we can work from mobile devices, we have a distributed culture as well. So you can work from home. Yeah. Uh, and we've experimented with a lot of different systems for that. Uh, a lot of it has to ha comes down to like us kind of drawing a line eventually. Like we knew we should end at this time. Uh, that's actually been the most effective. But I feel like some of the greatest things are the empathy. So mm. when you are running a company together, she immediately knows that was like a tough day. Yeah. or what's going on, what's on my mind. She knows why I'm feeling something. I know why she's feeling something. Uh, that's really powerful. Also the level of like figuring stuff out together. Mm. Like you just do so much of that inside of the company. So when you yeah. do that in your personal life, you get really good at that too. Mm. Um, so I, we had a baby and figuring out, you know, like how to come to Canada and get a job. Yeah. Like all of that was made much simpler because we, have experienced like working together and we have like systems and we understand how to like feed off of each other. Mm -hmm. That's great. And, um, you know, kind of, kind of to, um, kind of bring this back to the, what we talked about earlier in terms of your upbringing, curious to know, you know, throughout your journey, have you felt, or how do you relate to fear? You know, cause number one, moving to Canada for somebody who you don't know if you're going to be with for a long time, starting yeah. multiple companies, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty around that. How have you related to fear and, um, you know, what, what things you do to, to manage that and, and not let that uh, consume you too much? Yeah, the one of the most helpful things that I've kind of adopted around fear, um, and it's really only been the last couple of years that I've put it into practice a lot, is um, fear if you feel it, you probably, it's actually telling you to go in that direction. Mm. So when you're afraid of something, it means there's, a, there's something there that uh, you don't quite understand. And, and usually that, that's where the, the opportunity sits. It's the thing that's the most uncomfortable for you. And you can do this in all kinds of things. Yeah. So like I'll give a little example to a big example. Little example, you make a to-do list for the day. There's one in there that seems really ugly and mm. hairy. And there's a reason that it, that's that. It's probably like super impactful, but super unclear. Yeah, It's got both of those criteria. And that's probably the one you should do first because yeah. it's gonna have a huge impact. You're gonna feel super good 
Um, and you just need to break it apart. And so mm -hmm. like, that's kind of how I've looked at fear. Uh, same thing happens when you're presenting something on stage, you have the opportunity, someone maybe asks you, hey, do you want to uh, uh, speak on stage for this? And that first reaction, maybe you get kind of like, mm, I'm not sure. And that's actually probably fear. And so it's probably yeah. telling you, you actually should go do that. You should mm -hmm. go uh, figure out you know, how to overcome that fear. And mm. I see that in all kinds of, of different places yeah. and, and things like going to figure out how to meet Steph. You know, my wife yeah. at the beginning, it was like, I don't have a job. I'm not sure how we're going to figure this thing out. But uh, I, because almost because of that, I feel like I should go in that direction. Right. So it sounds like you've consistently leaned into that feeling while some people might, you know, be overwhelmed by it and actually not do anything or do the opposite. But yeah. Usually, Super cool. Um, and then, you know, last couple of questions is, uh, first off, um, your parents, what is your, how, what do your parents understand about what you do? Um, and also, what's your view on, you know, you being a CEO and co-founder versus maybe having a more stereotypical corporate job, um, which I'm sure some of your peers might have. Yeah. Yeah, my, my parents over the years, uh, have gotten to understand like the kind of business that I'm building and what it is. Uh, we've you know gone through lots of iterations of different business ideas. So I, I, I don't think it was ever as clear as what it is with Unsplash, especially they can use Unsplash and they right. have used it and they've seen yeah. it you know show up in different places versus something like Crew they can't use. So they're dependent yeah. upon me kind of telling mm -hmm. them what it looks like. Uh, so they really do understand um, unsplash and they get it. Uh, but I think, yeah, it's like, uh, living with the uncertainty. Cause I think everybody wants the best for their child. And there's like a fear if you're not stable, if yeah. you're not like set up well. Um, and I, and that's especially true in Asian cultures. And so I think seeing it, seeing me operate in this way for many years is what gives them comfort. Like if it maybe in the first year or two is probably like make sure you have a backup plan but I, they never said that to me mm. um, but i think there's the i can feel now it's just like it's like this is his job you know mm. like it's it's a living it's for real like if you're able to go this long and yeah. uh, operate and you're not starving you know you've, you've probably figured something out so they've been they've been really good about that that's great. Yeah, they seem to be have, have been very supportive and open and just helping you figure out what you're you're passionate about and what you're good at ever since you're young. So it's yeah. great that, that that's kind of been a consistent theme throughout your life. Um, yeah. and, and I think there was there was a push, you know, to go into medical, go into and that's why in, in college I was pre medicine. I was yeah. uh, you know, things that would be secure. And yeah. I think it really just comes from the parental view of they don't want to, they won't want you to have to worry. They want you to be okay. Yeah. And I guess kind of closing this up is now that you're a relatively new dad. Yeah. How do you think about, um, you know, what, what you view your job as, as a parent is to your daughter and potentially other kids of like, what's, what's your primary role as a dad? So I, I think of it like, a board member where I'm not, I'm not like telling her exactly what to do. Like it's her, it's her life, but I'm there yeah. to advise from the experience that I've accumulated 
um, and she can move into different areas that interest her in the way that she pleases. And I will sort of just be like, here's uh, some things in history. Here's like what has happened before. Here's, you know, stories and anecdotes to uh, help her tune her own way. Um, yep. So I really look at it more like in, in that way. I'm I'm kind of uh, like next to her versus like being in her life. You know, we see that like with the crazy athletic parent, you know, and that I don't want to force her in that way. And I also don't want to create filters on the world because one of the beautiful things about a kid who's really young is it's pure. You know, they don't know what they don't have any like substance that's put on top of them. There's no rules. There's no even manners, you know, anything. And so that purity is something that I hope to maintain because I feel um, there's like a human, human connection with that. And that allows you to see the world in, in uh, also pure ways where you can probably come up with ideas or solutions that can help a lot of people when uh, those layers aren't in front of you. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and I guess the last question to wrap up is for folks who are interested in just following you and learning more about what Unsplash is up to, what's the best way for folks to follow you on the internet? I'm probably most active on Twitter. So my first name and last name, so at Mikhail Cho on Twitter. Yep. And then uh, unsplash.com is the site. Cool. Thanks so much, Mikhail. Super, super interesting conversation and um, really inspiring as well. Um, so appreciate your time. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. Please share this with your friends and follow us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. Looking forward to our next conversation. And until then, take care.